Lou Church was an exemplar of the entrepreneur. He prospered in the free enterprise system through hard work, risk-taking, innovation, and making use of his talents for the benefit of others and himself. Mr. Church remained true to the values of freedom, a market economy, limited government, and the private property order. Through the Lou Church Educational Foundation, he hoped to preserve and perpetuate this system in which those who followed after him would have the same opportunity to prosper and enjoy liberty that he had. We are honored to have Robert Murphy deliver this year's Lou Church Memorial Lecture. Dr. Murphy is visiting assistant professor of economics at Hillsdale College. He earned his BA magna cum laude in economics from Hillsdale College and an MA and PhD in economics from New York University. Dr. Murphy has published numerous articles in popular and scholarly venues, including the Journal of the History of Economic Thought, the Journal of Economics and Sociology, the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, and the Journal of Libertarian Studies. He is the author of two book manuscripts, Chaos Theory and Minerva, and a home study course in Austrian Economics. Dr. Murphy will speak on the topic, The Tension Between Economics and Religion. Bob. Thank you, Jeff, for that introduction. First, I would like to uh, thank Lou Rockwell for inviting me to give this talk. I'm very honored and humbled uh, to be able to do so. Uh, let me clarify the title. I don't mean anything more profound than what it suggests, that there is in the popular culture this, this idea that free market economics in particular and Christianity in particular are somehow at odds with each other. I think many people would say, for those of you who espouse and endorse free market economics, how can you call yourself a true Christian? And, and so that's what I want to uh, discuss today. And as we'll see, I don't think that that, that criticism is, is entirely warranted. But on the other hand, I think those of us who are Christians uh, can't just dismiss it as, as out, of, out of hand and think that, oh, there's, there's nothing th to that complaint. So there's, there's one sense that's quite obvious in which if you're a free market economist, that that could conflict with your Christianity, and that would be if you place that above your faith, if you think that your occupation is more important in your life than that your faith is. And, of course, you wouldn't say that in the abstract, but if by your behavior that's what you show you really care about, then, of course, that's a problem if you're a Christian. And But there's nothing peculiar to economics in that regard, whether you're a botanist or a chemist or a philosopher. If you care more about your work and put more effort into that than you do your faith, then, of course, that's a problem. And just to, to let you know, though, that this isn't just a, uh, a a remark I make just because it's obvious and we move on, that I noticed myself, I violated that very uh, pre precept myself a few weeks ago. I had to uh, sign up for a new email account, and I was, as you can imagine, there's, not, there's, there's more than one Bob Murphy walking around. And so I, uh, I was trying different permutations of things, and I, I even think I tried Bob Murphy and put my bank PIN number on, which is probably the stupidest thing you could possibly do <laughs> in retrospect. So fortunately, someone else is using my PIN and Bob Murphy. Uh, but finally, I settled on one that was Bob Murphy and Cap. Okay, and so okay, that went through, and I was, I was really pleased. Okay, that's anarcho-capitalist, for those of you who don't know. And... Um, but then it occurred to me a few minutes later, why was it that I was trying to come up with some way to describe myself? Why did I pick my political views? Why didn't I say Bob Murphy Christian or Bob Murphy, my boss is a Jewish carpenter, to make people pause and think and then, uh, you know, oh, that's clever. Um, so so why, did, why, did I go, why did I go the route of the, the political aspect? Why did I choose that to describe myself? And it, it disturbed me, and I think that that, that is um, a problem. And... Just not to justify why I did that, but just thinking about psychologically what was it that led me to, to act that way. I, I was thinking about it, and I realized, well, one thing is if you call yourself a Christian in America, that's not giving people too much information. In other words, there's plenty of Christians, and that doesn't, you know, it's sort of like saying I have a heartbeat, right? Um, but whereas to say I'm an anarcho-capitalist, it's not like everyone's saying, yeah, tell us something we don't know. Um, <laughs> so, so there's that aspect to it. But then also, and, and, you know, that's in a sense defensible, but then the aspect that's not defensible and that I, I did regret was that there was also the element that, oh, you know, it, it's cool to be an anarcho-capitalist and it shows I'm a rebel and that really, you know, it gives an insight into my personality, whereas, you know, I'm oh, Christian. But if you think about it, that's exactly wrong, that 
to, to be a Christian, if you are a, a real Bible-believing Christian, that's far more radical than uh, to be an anarcho-capitalist. That, sure, anarcho-capitalists, oh, you think the government is flawed and that you critique the government and that institution of power, but a true Christian believes that the world itself has fallen and that all forms of power, in a sense, are the realm of Satan and that that's, that's his arena. And so I, I think that it, for the very reasons that we think those of us who are anarcho-capitalists that it's in a sense kind of cool and rebellious to be that, that by the same token all the more so it's it's cool and re rebellious in a sense to uh, against the institutions of this world to, to uh, be a Christian. And, and just to, if I can go on a little bit on this point and come back to the main topic in a moment, it's it's funny because I think a lot of libertarians, radical libertarians, whenever there's something wrong with humanity, some sort of social problem that we can all identify as, yes, that's a problem, the standard libertarian solution or, or approach is to first say, okay, how is government causing that problem? And that's, and I, there's usually, the government certainly has a hand in it, but I think from a Christian viewpoint that that's, that's missing the, the big picture, that ultimately it's not merely that, oh, government is messing things up, but the human beings themselves are flawed. And there are plenty of things that it's true government exacerbates it. And, of course, you have fallen men in the government doing it. But it's even if, even if there were a libertarian so-called utopia, that really wouldn't be the Garden of Eden. That even if everyone endorsed Rothbardian ethics and we had a, everyone obeying property rights, this would still be a sinful world and that Satan would still have means by which he would uh, deceive people. So... Um, Anyway, that's my point there is just that it's there, that's one type of tension I've perceived between not so much uh, free market economics but radical libertarianism, and I'll come back to that at the end of the talk if I have some time. But back to the, the main topic, the alleged or perhaps real tension between free market economics and Christianity, I have this quote from C.S. Lewis, who most of us in this room I think respect, and we certainly can't just dismiss anything that he says as, as being uh, foolish. And this is from Mere Christianity, I believe, and he says, There is one bit of advice given to us by the ancient Greeks and by the Jews in the Old Testament and by the great Christian teachers of the Middle Ages, which the modern economic system has completely disobeyed. All these people told us not to lend money at interest. And lending money at interest, what we call investment, is the basis of our whole system. Now, it may not absolutely follow that we are wrong, but I should not have been honest if I had not told you that three great civilizations had agreed, or so it seems at first sight, in condemning the very thing on which we have based our whole life. All right, so I, the, when I read that, I, it, it disturbed me, and, and not in the sense that how could C.S. Lewis have been so crazy, but rather in the sense that, yeah, I mean, he's right, and, you know, of course, coming from the Austrian tradition, we know about the law of time preference and and that, and that's the explanation um, and justification, if you will, for interest. But it, it did seem hard. How, how do you square it with that? And how could it be that all these these great traditions that we um, endorse in terms of our faith lives, how could it? How could they have been so completely wrong? Or, or rather, is it that they're wrong, or is, there, is it more nuanced? So that was. Um, so, th so that's an issue for me. And just to make it a little bit more personal, to, to understand why I'm particularly interested in this one, my dissertation topic involved capital and interest theory, and in portions of it I was, in a sense, saying this is the, the proper way or this is a better way to defend the capitalist earning of interest in, the, in a market economy as opposed to some of the other defenses that have been given. And so if, if C.S. Lewis, you know, if his, if his point is a valid one, then that led, me, uh, it led me to worry a bit. And just to tell you two, two incidents that happened, I was, as, when I was a graduate student, I was wrapping up my dissertation and so you know, you'd work on it at home, and then you'd go into the office and work on it there. And so I was at, at, at home working on my laptop, and then I had to go into the office. I didn't want to be carrying around a floppy, so of course you, you know, email it to yourself so that when you get into, the, into school, you can get it off your email there. And I, it must have been nearing the ends of the, uh, of the process because I, I converted it to an Adobe file that was really big and, and attached that. So you know, go and I don't know if they give it to all their graduates or just Ph.D. students or how it works, but I was filling out the form, you know, how did you enjoy your time here, how did this compare with other institutions and so on, and one of the things was a bubble sheet with all the different, you know, graduate school of the arts and sciences and what, pro, what department were you in, and what do you think the three-digit code for the economics department was? It was 666, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not making this up. You'd think someone would have caught that, but maybe they thought it was funny. I don't know, but... 
so I'm, this is I'm saying I'm, it's not merely an academic thing. There was really there was a time when I was really concerned about these things. Now, for Austro-Libertarian economists who aren't particularly uh, prone to excessive self-doubt, people like Walter Block, for example, um, I don't know him that well, but I, I don't picture Walter Block laying awake at night saying, am I doing the right thing with my life? That, you know, that's, um, I, I, he could explain these, these events, of course. He could say, well, NYU, it's a bunch of commies, and yes, of course, their program is from the devil, that they're teaching you... Uh, to contrast the free market decentralized outcome with the central planner solution. And I'm, I'm not making that up. That's, I mean, you, you guys are familiar with Pareto optimality, and that's the way mainstream economists you know, say this is what ought to happen, and then what does the market do in equilibrium? But they didn't call it the Pareto optimal outcome. They actually referred to it in class you know, on the board as the central planner solution, and that was the benchmark against which. So, so there, you know, it's no surprise that, that uh, that's... Uh, came up as 666 in his description. As far as my dissertation, well, I criticized Mises and Rothbard, so what do you expect that that would happen? Now, the, but, but to, to be a bit more serious about this, the, I think there is an element of, of truth in there, or at least even those of us who, uh, in terms of academics, endorse the Austrian uh, theories concerning interest, uh, in our personal lives, there are certain situations where we can at least understand the, the popular... Um, rejection of interest is somehow being exploitation. So, for example, when we were newly married, my wife and I, on a few occasions, either from my parents or her parents, we would get a, a, a moderate-sized loan for a few months. You know, you, we, we hit trouble, and, and rather than having to go to get a cash advance on a credit card, of course, one of, set of our parents would say, well, here, we'll lend you the money and just pay us back in a few months when you can. And, of course, they didn't let us pay them interest on it. They would have been insulted. They wanted us to pay them back. It wasn't that they were just giving us the money, but they, they would have never, you know, it would have been inconceivable to them that they would have charged us prime rate plus 10 points or something because, <laughs> you know, that's, well, that's what the market will bear. So, and so if you just think about it, well, gee, you know, why is that then? Is it, it seems that there's some validity to someone who might say, see, you economists, you free market economists, you have these, these theories that you think apply to the anonymous market, but as a Christian, don't you realize that you know, everyone's your brother, and that we're all, everything is really in a sense a face-to-face transaction, and how can you endorse one set of ethics or norms for the so-called marketplace, but a different one in your personal life? But the more I was thinking about that, I don't, it's not so cut and dry, and it really doesn't have anything to do particularly with interest. That, for example, if, if our lawnmower broke down and my, and my dad heard the story, I'm sure he would say, well, you can come borrow my lawnmower, and he wouldn't charge me $20 to do that. It would have been fine, even though, in a sense, I'm giving him back the lawnmower that was slightly more depreciated than when he lent it to me. And, and so, you see, it's not so much having anything to do with money in particular. I think it's just more that they had certain goods that, that we needed for a temporary period. And also, there's the issue that they knew I was good for the, the loan, whereas a credit card company, just going off my credit history, wouldn't have as much information and be as sure that I wasn't going to skip town and not pay them back. And so, with the more you think about it, these examples aren't, it's not so crystal clear that we're advocating one set of norms for your personal family life and a completely different one in the marketplace. And of course, if we wanted to go buy a house, our parents wouldn't have given us $30,000 and said, just pay us back whenever you can and let's not even bother writing a contract. And, and you know, they, they of course would have said, okay, and what interest rate are you going to pay us if the, if the numbers got, got bigger and bigger? So, as I say, it's not so obvious that there really is this, these, this double standard that one would be advocating, even if you do agree that, yes, in certain situations, if you're lending money to your kid or you're borrowing money from your parents, that it would be a bit unseemly if they were charging an interest rate. And this, um, this is similar, I think, to some arguments I had with people over Katrina that I, I wrote a few articles on the... Uh, you know, the, the, the complaints against the price gouging and I was saying things, well, you know, that's exactly the exact opposite of what we need, that the, the, the rise in prices of bottled water and, and batteries and so on, that's the signals that the, the market uses to, to ship the goods to the people who need them most. And some people were emailing me and saying, oh, come on, you say that, I can't believe you people really believe that stuff. Are you telling me that, you know, someone walking through New Orleans and it's flooded and there's all these people dying of thirst and he has bottled water and you really think that he ought to be going, 30, 30, 30, do I hear 30, do I hear 25, and be auctioning off the water while these people are all um, dying of thirst, and how can you say that with a straight face? And it's true, in that particular situation, no, I, I do think if that person's a Christian and there are people literally dying in front of them and he has the water there, 
that it, it would be incorrect without knowing more information about the situation to to not give them the water and to, to insist that they pay him and, and if they can't pay then they die or to give all the water to somebody down who has offers a hundred dollar bill and let you know 90 other people who don't have any money on them at that moment die of thirst I, I do agree that 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 wouldn't be a Christian thing to do but as I was arguing with this person and trying to push it back what exactly does the person think ought to be done instead besides just telling people if you're in situations like that do what you think is right because I think where this person was coming from, if you pushed it far enough, basically the entire United States would have had to stop using money altogether. That could because you could say, well, the bottled water company, how could they continue to ship water to these people and just hand it out for free? They would have gone out of business and because they have to pay their workers and they have to pay their suppliers and so on. And the, the response could be, oh, well, that's only because those people are being greedy. If we lived in a just society, then the workers would realize, well, we don't, can't insist on wages Right now, we have to you know, drive the trucks down and hand out the water, do our part to help these, these poor people. And you could say, okay, but then if they didn't get wages, well, how would they feed their family? And you could just keep pushing it back and saying, well, the supermarkets ought to give food for free to the people who are volunteering to help the people in Katrina by giving them water. And it would just keep moving in larger and larger circles. And it's not, eventually, it wouldn't just be a matter of incentives. It wouldn't be unrealistic because at some point you'd run up against people who were hypocrites and, and acting in an unchristian manner. But eventually you would have to be planning the entire economy without money prices that people would need to know okay these bottles of water should go down to new orleans and it's not just which goods need to go down there because there'd be the problem that you know what if a thousand flashlights went down but only 200 batteries went down and then you know it would be pointless and so little things like that that don't just automatically follow from the sermon on the mount quantitative issues that really it's not a matter of pure justice that it, it it's um there's there's quantities involved, there's numbers involved, and that's where economic calculation uh, assists us greatly. And so that's, and, and again, it's not just the consumption good. It's also, okay, let's suppose we can agree that this bottled water ought to go down to the people in New Orleans, and we can decide on that, and, and the water's uh, you know, up in Washington, D.C. Well, how do we get it down there? Do we charter a private jet and fly down there and get it there in a few hours, or do we put it on a bus and get it there in a few days? These are the sorts of trade-offs that, even if we can agree on the ultimate moral ends, it's not entirely obvious the way to, to achieve them. And that's, again, where economic calculation comes into play. So it's, it's not that I had a, uh, a definitive answer for the person. I could identify in every single situation, oh, yes, this would be the Christian thing to do or this wouldn't. But it's, it doesn't immediately follow that this person's t pointing to what he called price gouging was an evil thing, that that... In certain aspects, I think it would be entirely appropriate for someone to raise prices, in a sense, taking advantage of the situation, the temporary um, emergency situation of those people, because if you don't allow that person to do that and you apply that principle to more and more people, well, then we just lose the ability to help the people as effectively as possible. And it's, it's not, just to clarify, I'm not merely saying that, oh, it's a violation of property rights and you can't use coercion, and so that's why it would be unacceptable. Even put that aside, I'm saying if we can agree that just our sole aim were to help as many hurricane victims as possible, then it would not follow that we should all stop charging higher prices or charging what the market should bear. And it, the, the sort of thing that he wanted, that he, the, that he wanted to have people there handing out water for free and not worrying about uh, making as much money as possible, of course that's perfectly consistent with a private property order that people, one of the ways they can help, and I was glad that relief agencies were saying this, they were saying things like, sure, give us, give us bottled water, give us cans of tuna fish, or whatever, but if you really want to help, write us a check. And I was glad that they weren't afraid to say that, even though it's, it sounds so unseemly to certain people, but no, that's the way they can help those people the most, because they got their, the relief agencies have their people on the ground, so to speak, and know exactly what's necessary, and so if you give them money, they can just go buy it and give the people exactly what they need, rather than relying on people giving them actual goods and then sorting through them and figuring out, okay, well, I guess we can send this here and this here. They can just get money from everybody and go uh, buy it or have their volunteers go and hand the things out for free. And the way they pay the suppliers of bottled water is through those voluntary donations that other people have given. So it's, it's not that, um, let me put it this way, respecting property rights is consistent with all sorts of responses to Katrina, that if everyone had been completely indifferent and said, yeah, those people should have known better than to live down there and done absolutely nothing, then I think that would have been uh, sinful, perhaps, for many people to ignore the plight that was right before their eyes. 
but, or on the other hand, people responding and going and donating a lot of money and, and responding generously would also have been consistent with voluntarily obeying property rights and not um, abandoning the market order. Now, I want to move on to the, some passages in the Bible to, uh, to elaborate on, the, on this, these themes. When it comes to property in the Old Testament, I think it's, it's clear that it's certainly not an unjust institution, that it seems that, that God has no problem with property per se. And that might seem like a, a strange thing for me to, to talk about, but again, it, it, the relevance for me was in arguing with certain leftist anarchists who, who believe that not only the government but private property itself is an, an unjust institution that relies on force. Uh, it's, we, we went back and forth with our intellectual arguments, but the thing that really reassured me that I think I'm on the right side of this debate is the Ten Commandments say do not steal and don't cover your neighbor's possessions. And, and why, would, why would God say that if really property it, it inherently was, was an unjust institution, that, it seemed that, he, that wouldn't be part of the Ten Commandments? And then something that you may not have reflected on, let me just read you a little passage. It's from the end of the book of Jonah. So, of course, the story, uh, Jonah is called to go to Nineveh and, and tell them that the Lord's angry with them, and he doesn't want to, and he, he ends up there and he tells them. And then, amazingly, they listen to this for they repent, and then God doesn't carry out the destruction that he had he would um, threaten them with. And what's ironic is the the thing the thing that's bad about being a prophet is not only are you saying things that are unpopular, but most of the time people just ignore you and you're powerless and you see the warnings you had issued come fulfilled. Whereas with Jonah, you'd think he would be ecstatic that here he goes to the city, he tells them to change their ways and they listen to him. But no, of course, Jonah, he's miserable. He actually wants the Lord to take his life because he's so miserable. And so God's trying to explain to Jonah, well, no, I, you know, I sh it's a good thing that I was merciful and think about what you were asking me to do. And, and he says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? But then he adds, and much livestock. Now, now that, <laughs> if you think about it, that's, that's a strange thing to say. It's, it's unexpected that he's, he's telling him, you know, you were asking me or you wanted me to kill 120,000 people who, for all practical purposes, didn't really know how bad what they were doing, what it was, and, you know, so we needed you to go tell them. And then he adds, and you wanted me to destroy all that livestock, too. Now, of course, it could just be that, that Jonah was very materialistic. We're not sure from the, from the book itself, and maybe the Lord was just trying to, to you know, wake him up and get him to see, look at what you were asking me to do. But nonetheless, that always struck me as a strange thing for him to say, that you were asking me to destroy all this property. So, um, now, if we, if we move on to... The New Testament, I think the, the, the modern critic who says that there's all sorts of things in Christianity that are inconsistent with, um, with free market economics or the endorsement of free market economics, there are plenty of passages in the Gospels that at least superficially uh, lend some credibility to that claim. But I think, let me just read a, a somewhat lengthy excerpt to, to sort of put them in perspective. I, I think most of these passages, it's not so much that Jesus is denouncing wealth and riches per se, but rather the attitude that, that you're getting your security from them. So it's not if you have um, wealth that that means you're automatically, you must not be a good person or you must not be following God's commands, but rather if, if you're really worried about the future and so what do you do? Oh, I'm going to go diversify my portfolio. Now, whew, now I feel a lot better about myself and I can, I can handle the uncertainties of tomorrow. If that's your attitude rather than well, I'm going to trust in the Lord. Whatever happens tomorrow is consistent with his plan. And so even if I don't understand it at the time, I better just accept it and try to know that at some point it will make sense to me. If the first thing is your solution, then yes, I think that's what Jesus specifically is saying the problem is. So let me just, to, to back that particular interpretation up that I don't think is too, um, that many people would disagree with, this is from uh, Matthew's Gospel. So he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And a little bit later he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay, and then he says, 
a little bit later. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Okay, so there, he wasn't saying you don't need material goods. No, he was saying the exact opposite, that you do need them, but God knows you need them. And the point wasn't, don't, um, when he says don't worry about them, I don't think he means forget about them and just don't even consider them. I think he means literally don't worry about them, that it'll take care of itself in a sense if you first um, put what's most important and set that as the priority in your life. Now, there's a few other passages that, are, that I think the, the critic would point to and say these particularly show the, the flaw in your, in your thesis if you're a free market economist. Uh, so let me just deal with those. These will be shorter quotations. So if we look at, at Matthew chapter 5, it's the, uh, the famous passages about, you know, if someone wants to borrow, go ahead and, and, and lend to them. And if someone wants your, your cloak, give them your tunic as well, or your tunic, give them your cloak as well. And he says... Um, Sorry, just a moment here. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And a little bit later, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And in and of itself, it does, it does look like that's saying, how could you be a capitalist who charges what the market will bear? But in context, you see the right before those, it says, for example, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him also. And then immediately after that is, if anyone wants to sue you, and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak. And then there's another first, but then the next one, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So in, in, the, in that context, it seems as if the person who is just coming up to you and asking to borrow money, it's, it's possible that that person in a sense is aggrieving you is um, the same way that someone who comes up and slaps you on the cheek is. And so the fact that he's saying there, you can go ahead and you should, you should lend to the person anyway, I don't think he's saying therefore Anytime you're lending money to someone, don't expect to ever be paid back and don't worry about um, repayment. I think it's, uh, it's more that he's just showing this is the way you deal with, with in a sense, affronts to you or insults to yourself, that you, you just respond with, with generosity and kindness. Okay, what about the, the probably the most famous uh, example for in this tradition of, of the apparent tension between Christianity and free market economics? In the Gospel of Mark... We have the um, example: the the rich man comes up to Jesus and he says, "What do I, good teacher? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life?" And he says, "Follow the commandments." And he lists some of them. And he says, "I've done that." And he says, "Okay, one more thing: you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me." But the rich man was sad at this word because he had many possessions, and he just walked away sorrowfully. And so then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished at his words. And he says again, and this one in particular, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. All right, so there, um, certainly it seems as if that's evidence in favor of the, the thesis that there's a conflict. But again, at least in this translation, the second time he uttered it, he says more specifically for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in context of the other things I've, uh, I've mentioned to you, I think it's, it's not so much that um, someone who has riches per se, but rather the type of person who has riches is probably also going to be the one who really seeks after them. And so that's, um, I think, his point. And also, of course, Jesus knew when that particular rich man came up to him that he was going to say that he wasn't going to listen to him. And so it's possible that the reason he said to him, what I want you to do is to sell your riches and give to the poor and come follow me, was that he wanted to have a lesson for his disciples. So I don't think it necessarily follows just from that story that if you are rich right now, that means Jesus wants you to sell everything and you know go join a monastery or something. I, it's, again, it's... It's not that we're sure he doesn't mean that, but I don't think that passage alone you could conclude um, straightforwardly that that's what he does mean for all people who are rich to do. And also, one thing to consider is by, by their standards, just about everyone in America today is fabulously wealthy. So I think a lot of people, like blue-collar churchgoers, for example, probably think, yeah, when they read something like that, Bill Gates is going to hell for sure, 
But you know, I'm I'm not because look at look at how hard it is. I only have you know, my car's beat up, and we you know we don't even have cable, and we have a you know a dial-up internet connection, where where of course compared to the you know they're they're probably in many respects richer than Herod was. Okay, so it's again it's always a, a relative thing, and so what do we mean by by rich? I I don't think Jesus had in mind a particular material standard of living. I think it was more an, an attitude that do you. Um, derive your personal self-worth or do you derive your security from your material possessions or do you realize that, that they're really nothing, that, that that's not an, an important thing in the grand scheme. Okay, another um, famous story from the, from the Gospels, I'm not going to read it, uh, comes from uh, the Gospel of Luke, as it mentions it, where Jesus tells a story of the, uh, the rich man who was dressed in fine robes and so on, and then there's the, the beggar Lazarus, and the Lazarus, you know, begs him for crumbs. And then when they when they both die, the rich man is is being tormented uh, by hellfire, and Lazarus is in paradise. And and um, and Abraham explains to the rich man that you know what you you had good things in, on on earth, and now and Lazarus was a poor beggar, and now the situations have been reversed. And that I think epitomizes the anti-capitalist interpretation of Christianity that those who are who do well in this world. It's gonna, they're gonna have the exact opposite. The, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But even there, it's, um, and I have to confess, my interpretation of that story was inspired by uh, a Bob Dylan song where he, he, I think he's referring to this story. It's, um, the song Joker Man, if you're familiar with it, but at one point he, he says, uh, looking into the fiery furnace and see a rich man without any name. And that's what's interesting about this story is the beggar Lazarus is named. We know who he is. He's a real person. Whereas the rich man, we never learn his name. It's just, oh, he's a rich man. And so I, I think it's possible that what the lesson there is is that person, again, defined himself in terms of his his riches, and that's how he viewed himself, and that that was what was most important to him. Whereas presumably Lazarus didn't define himself as, oh, I'm a I'm a beggar. So that's that's one little note. But another one, just if we if we want to say, is it really the case that God thinks wealth is bad per se? I don't think so. If we consider uh, what happened with Solomon, so of course you know he's he's placed on the throne after David. Um, you know, he's the son of David. He gets on the throne, and then the Lord comes to him in a, in a dream and asks him, "Ask me what you want, and I'll give it to you." And Solomon asks basically for wisdom and discerning justice so that he can effectively rule over the people. In the, in the way that God wants, and God's very pleased with that answer. He says, you didn't ask me for riches, you didn't ask me for long life, you didn't ask me to, to destroy your enemies, and so, yes, not only will I grant you what you've asked, but I'll grant you these other things as well. And so he's rewarding Solomon with riches. And so there, it's, it's, not, it's not that, oh, if you had asked for riches, that would have been bad because riches are an evil thing to have, but rather that that's not what you should have asked me for. You should have asked me, you know, wisdom was a much better answer. And then because of that, I'm going to reward you and shower you with these other things. And so if it really were the case that it was bad and unrighteous to have wealth per se, I don't think it would have made sense for the Lord to, to give him riches. And, of course, there's other places, too, when, when God is telling them, you know, I told you to tithe and you're not tithing, and he says things to the effect that, you know, just trust in me and tithe, and then, you know, you will get more than paid back in, in essence. And so it's not so much that... Of course, God wants the material goods that they're offering to him, but rather he wants them to obey his word and to trust him that even though it seems, in a sense, silly, why would I give up one-tenth of my goods, That's especially when God doesn't need them? That's crazy. But no, of course, the point is just to do what he says, and then you'll get more than that back in ways that you wouldn't have anticipated. All right, so, so again, I, I think it's far too simplistic to look at particular passages that on the face of them do seem to suggest a hostility between wealth and you know the capitalist way of life, if you will, and uh, Christianity. But I think there are other passages that put it in context. Okay, let me um, move on. I'm running out of time here. One thing I would say is whether or not we think that it's it's they can feel comfortable in the grand scheme of things. I think Austro-Libertarian economists, at least if there is this tension, are far. Um, their actions are far more defensible than other possible economists. Because what Austro-Libertarians do, yes, they're scientists, and they use economic science, and, they, and they, that's what they devote their occupation to. But what they, the point of it is not just to study economic science per se, but then they go and apply and try to diminish or eliminate what they perceive to be as injustice. All right, so 
um, somebody who, who gets involved in, in the arguments over the drug war, for example, it's not simply an academic exercise, but the point is to, to stop people getting locked up and to stop drive-by shootings and things like that. And so that's, it's, if, we, if we go back to the, to the C.S. Lewis quote, it, it's true. I'm not, I'm not sure if, as an Austrian economist, you can say the world would be worse if more people um, lowered the rate of interest that they insisted on when they were giving loans to people. I, I'm not sure that the other way is true, too, but it's, uh, it's not clear to me if voluntarily, if, if people, especially Christians, said, you know, maybe I should, should lend out to more people without asking for interest. Maybe there wouldn't be any ramifications from that. Maybe it would be good. But what I am pretty sure about is if the government uses guns basically to punish people who are charging interest, that, I think, is, would clearly be worse than the alleged evil that we're trying to remedy. And so to the extent that what we're doing is not so much telling individuals how to live their lives, but rather just taking certain means off the table, namely intervention by the government, then I think um, there's a much stronger case where the Austro-Libertarian economists can clearly say, yes, what I'm doing is not inconsistent with the tenets of Christianity. Now, having said that, I, I do think that there, there are um, aspects of Austro-Libertarianism that you, we do need to be careful about. So I, I've mentioned one that I, I think it's incorrect or, or short-sighted perhaps to say, oh, the government's causing all these bad problems and not to realize, if you're a Christian at least, that, well, no, it's ultimately men that are doing it. And even if we did achieve our political aims and, and had Rothbardian paradise, it really wouldn't be a, a Christian paradise. I mean, you know, it would be a Rothbardian one perhaps, but there's all sorts of, um, you know, sin would still occur even in that framework. And another point I would want to make is that I think libertarians sometimes lose sight of the fact that there are plenty of things that are legal from a libertarian point of view that are far more sinful than other things that would be illegal from a libertarian point of view. And, uh, for example, suicide would be presumably legal in a, in a Rothbardian world, but of course that's, if you're a Catholic at least, that's, you know, one of the, or if not the worst thing you can do, or just to, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, for example, is, that's a very serious thing to do from a Christian point of view, but of course that would be perfectly legal to do in a libertarian world. And again, it's, we, we know this when it comes to drug legalization, for example, we always are quite familiar with the distinction between the legality and the morality of something, so I'm not suggesting that I'm bringing up something you guys haven't heard before, but there are, um, just in discussing with people, I think a lot of times it, it does, people do fall into the trap of saying, well, you know, that's not a violation of property rights, so why are you criticizing it? When, you know, it's, you can criticize something and not mean, and therefore I'm going to use force to try to stop it. You can just say, oh, that's, that's a bad practice, and I don't think those people should do that, and they're wrong for doing it, and I'm not going to associate with them. And just to say, well, gee, they're not violating anyone's property rights, that, that isn't an adequate response necessarily. Okay, let me, um, let me deal with two last uh, biblical episodes that people would point to, specifically regarding anarcho-capitalism and Christianity, and I, and I hear these a lot, so in, in this talk it's, it's appropriate to address them, and then we'll, we'll have a few minutes for questions if you want. So one thing, of course, is Paul's letter to the Romans, where, just to read it specifically, because he, he doesn't, he's not wishy-washy about it, and so let me just make sure we understand, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, exactly what he's saying. He says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute, execute wrath on him and who practices evil. Okay, so as I say, he doesn't qualify this, and, and Christians email me and say, how can you possibly say you're against the government? And, you know, and that you, moreover, you try to argue that, that that's what a truly Christian viewpoint would be when look at what Paul's saying. What do you do with that? And let me admit, it, it is difficult. It does seem as if Paul is saying, um, that, yeah, how could you possibly say the government ever does anything wrong? But at the same time, forget anarcho-capitalism, just with regular, people with regular political beliefs, it seems that Paul's statements here can't possibly mean what it seems that they say. For example, he himself in the previous chapter um, is saying, uh, 
if, if, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then a little bit later, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so now I've, I've discussed that with um, non-anarcho-capitalist Christians at, at Hillsdale College, other professors, and, and they don't. And I, and I say, well, how do you reconcile those two? Is is he assuming that the people in government aren't themselves Christians? And the the answer that the person was, like, what are you talking about? No, he's not assuming that. It's just that you know, in your private life, you have. You know, you're not supposed to be wrathful and you're supposed to, um, you know, turn the other cheek and so on. But if you're acting as God's minister of justice as in a governmental capacity, then, of course, the other chapter is relevant. And that's you're fulfilling God's. Um, that's the way that the Lord takes his vengeance is that he works through the government officials. OK, so again, I mean, it's it's not that's a, an understandable interpretation. But even beyond that, though, I mean, certainly. It, it just seems there's no qualification here that Paul doesn't say governments that seem to be doing the right thing. I mean, there are, were plenty of historical cases of governments persecuting Christians. And so clearly, I don't think Paul would say to them, um, don't worry about it, that, you know, uh, the government's persecuting you because you did something wrong. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how, what he would do with that. But I'm just, what I'm suggesting is this passage in and of itself, I don't think if you're an anarcho-capitalist and a Christian, this should make you realize you're being inconsistent because it, it seems hard to reconcile with, with all sorts of more moderate political views. For example, of course, I don't endorse this, but many mainstream Christians who, if they were arguing me over anarchism, would point to this, also supported the invasion of Iraq. But you could just as well ask them, well, wasn't Saddam Hussein the minister of, of God? And, you know, if the Iraqis were getting killed by him, they must have done something unrighteous. And that's, that's why they were, right? And so I think, you know, even mainstream Christians who were, you know, fundamentalists and, and literally believed every word of the Bible would, would say, well, no, that doesn't follow. And so by the same token, it's just that with our political views, if you're an anarchist, that you think all types of human government um, are similarly not following other precepts of Christianity. Okay, and then the uh, the last thing I want to talk about is the the famous render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's quotation. Now there, the the context of that, of course, is the they were trying to to trap Jesus. Okay, so it's I think it's wrong to conclude from that that oh, see Jesus said therefore pay your taxes because he couldn't have said said one thing or the other. He had to. In order to get out of that situation, he had to give an answer that was unobjectionable, that no one could possibly disagree with. And you know, how could you disagree with saying, um, you know, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, and render under God, unto God what is God's? Nobody could say, oh, I don't agree with that. But it wasn't. It's not clear. Well, does he mean that the the tax money is Caesar's? And so, of course, if you're an anarcho-capitalist, you would you could easily reconcile that with your views and say, yeah, I don't think the government. Oh, you know, I owe the government my money. I don't think it's the government's money. And the, um, and, and the issue, it, of course, it was very ambiguous because he, he, he prefaced that by saying, you know, show me the coin, whose image is that on the denarius, and it was Caesar's. And so that certainly makes it sound as if he's saying, oh, well, then therefore the coin belongs to him. But again, it's, it's not clear that, you know, I could hold up a, a box of Wheaties and say, whose picture is, whose image is that? And you could say, Michael Jordan's. And say, okay, we'll give unto Jordan's what is Jordan's. And it, <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't follow, right? And so again, and, and it's, I don't think I'm just being flippant that it, it, they were trying to, to trap it. I didn't explain why in case you're not familiar with the story. They were, they were trying to trap him because they said, you know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? So if he says yes unambiguously, then the, the, the masses who view him as, as their savior, the one who's going to deliver them from the occupation, you know, the, the Roman authorities, they're going to be upset. They're going to think he's a sellout. So he can't just clearly say yes, but he can't say no because then you know he's saying don't pay your taxes to Caesar, and then he can be liable um, for, for on that ground. And so they were they were trying to give him a question, no matter which way he answered, he, he was going to be in trouble. And so that's why I think he needed to use that sort of evasion to to be as you know wise as a serpent, but as harmless as a, as a dove. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, and then um, there's a few more minutes for questioning, is um, certainly the the libertarian objection to taxes in that very on the very same page in, in my bible earlier he um he's telling the chief priests you know they're arguing with him back and forth and he says okay 
uh, tell me, so there, there's one son, he says, what do you think? There's, a man had two sons, and he says that the first one go to work in my vineyard, and he says, I'm not going to do it, but then the son ends up going and, and doing it. And then he says the same thing to his second son, and that son says, oh, sure, I'm going to go do it, but then he doesn't. And so Jesus says to them, which of these two actually did the will of his father? And they answer that the first one did. And then Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. So the fact that he's picking tax collectors in conjunction with harlots to tell them just how bad they are, I think um, shows that certainly Jesus was not a big fan of taxation. <laughs> so, okay, I'll, uh, so thank you and I'll, I'll let Jeff come up. Yeah, it's. Um, I certainly think it's. It'd be entirely appropriate if he just said, you know, don't use violent means against the government. But it, it does seem like he says more than just that. That what they're doing is, is God's will, and, and that's um, difficult to understand. Yeah, Doctor Prince. I think the most unusual thing about the Jewish uh, beliefs is to honor the Almighty with your everyday activity in the market. It says the Lord uh, loves honest weights and measure, for example. And, and then, uh, especially about private property, it is so well documented that even the king couldn't use eminent domain to see, say, the vineyard. David had to pay for it. And this is so well documented. I mm-hmm. don't know there'd be any questions. Yeah. Roger. Uh, Paul came from Tarsus, which is the center of Stoic philosophy, and he often borrows Stoic terminology to make his point, which makes me wonder, the Stoics held you should always obey the law, and you should always obey the ruler. They also held that no one counts as a genuine ruler unless they rule justly, and nothing counts as a genuine law unless it's just. Given that Paul in that very passage says that all legitimate authority comes from God, it comes to be, and could read it the other way and say that any authority that doesn't come from God, therefore, is not legitimate. Uh, any rulers that aren't from God are not legitimate rulers. So, you know, that passage might be ambiguous in the same way that the right. temple passage is. That, you know, saying, obey any legitimate ruler whose authority comes from God. Okay, well, which way does that cut? Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. Yes? I'd just like to make a point about usury. It has a a long history, um, especially in Roman Catholic thought, of being um, just misunderstood. And I think part of it is that they didn't get time preference um, until some of the early Austrians came on the scene. But in addition to that, there's a history of God's people... (coughs) Um, being subjected to other peoples and being taken advantage of. And one way that they were taken advantage of is that they were, they were loaned money at huge rates and they became slaves of the people that they lived in community with. And so this idea that usury is bad is there because God wanted to protect his people. He didn't want them to be enslaved. He wanted their hearts and minds to be um, in obedience to him instead of worrying about earthly things. Yes, Joseph? Uh, continuing in that same frame, I, I think we should answer 
Lewis, his criticism of the change in doctrine, there was no change in doctrine. See, uh, one of our guys in, uh, made his master's thesis on analysis of riches in, in the Bible and comparing riches at that time with riches today. At that time, there was no opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. The Latin phrase of it is dominum emergence. Little by little, we came to realize that if one did loan money, he is losing on another field. He is losing an alternative investment. And that type, that type of interest is perfectly legitimate. It wasn't realized that riches in the Old Testament was a barn full of food for the next two years. And to lend that stuff at interest is morally wrong because there's no dominant emergence, there's no opportunity cost. And that explains mm -hmm. in part the mm -hmm. difference and the change in the theory. Yeah, in, in my history of thought class, and this certainly isn't my area of expertise, so I, I, I don't dwell on it, but the definition, what's the difference? A lot of people use interest and usury interchangeably, but going back to the original ones, it's aligned with what you're saying. The um, interest was saying being paid back to compensate you for, your, for the lender's loss, whereas usury was charging over and above that. And so I, I make the point to my students that, yes, in a modern economy, actually, at least in general equilibrium, um, those two things are, are the same, that, you know, the, the amount... You, you can't charge over and above that. The, the opportunity cost is exactly what you would be able to get in the market. Okay, let's take one more. Timothy. Uh, Lord, you uh, left out that passage in Acts that mentions the early church and, and you know, they did not consider their property to be their own. And mm -hmm. Maybe that maybe you left it out because it's easy to show the <coughs> problems with that view. But could you address that just briefly and, and uh, oh. why that's not <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm not sure exactly what you want me. It, yes, um, clearly, if if particular Christians want to come together and, and put their pool their property and live communally, and they think that that's what how Jesus wants them to live, then that's certainly is radical libertarians. We have, not only do we have, um, you know, we, we wouldn't object to that in terms of that's that's not violating anyone's rights, but perhaps that even there should be examples like of that in those types of communities, and maybe. That's what I'm saying. I, I can't say whether or not that should happen. That's a personal decision, and maybe it would be good if more people would, would live like that. I, I'm not sure. But clearly that's, that's consistent um, with, with anarcho-capitalism, and it's, it's, as you say, that's not, um, that's not communism the, the way when I say, oh, I'm an anti-communist. I don't object to people doing that. All right. Thanks,